Well, good morning. It's good to see you all today and together for a special observance of the Lord's table. And thank you to our music team for leading us in song. And uh, for those who've wondered why we sing about feasting in the house of Zion, uh, we'll actually get to one of the passages that that language is borrowed from later this morning as well. But before we begin, I wanted to start with a pet peeve of mine. And that is going to get me in some some trouble, perhaps. If this applies to you, I apologize. Don't worry about it. Uh, a pet peeve of mine is is cheesy wedding vows. Cheesy wedding vows. And by cheesy wedding vows, I don't mean just that have you know beautiful poetic language. That's great. By cheesing wedding vows, I mean wedding vows that aren't actually vows. They're sort of non-committal love letters to each other. Or, or perhaps on the other extreme, there are these gushing declarations that are impossible to keep. I vow to never make you unhappy any day of my life. <laughs> I'd be curious to see what the world record holder on keeping that vow uh, is. I mean, those things are sentimental. They, they often come from a sincere heart. But they fall f- so far short of what that portion of a wedding ceremony is meant to be about. Uh, the, the primary purpose of wedding vows is, is not to make your beloved go, aww. It's to declare before God and before witnesses that you understand the expectations that the author has put on this relationship that you are entering into and that you are committing yourself again before God and witnesses to fulfilling those expectations until death. And it's so easy once we sort of lose sight of, of the meaning of something, the purpose of something, for it to begin that, that slide into being merely sentimental, to be merely traditional, and sometimes even to become ultimately selfish. And that was the case with the Corinthians when it came to the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper. It had gone through that sad decline. And this morning, as we look at the Lord's table, it's my hope that we are going to be reminded, all of us together, of the incredible blessing, the incredible meaning that the Lord's table represents to us each and every week as we observe it. And I hope it will encourage us never to be guilty of approaching the table of our Savior carelessly. And so with that in mind, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're just going to be looking at verses 23 to 26 this morning. And as always, if you are able, I invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's word. Follow along with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, again, verses 23 to 26, says this. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you pray with me? Father, we are glad to be gathered today as your people. We are thankful to be able to do so 
in coming to the table of our Savior Jesus to remember him, to honor him in both how we come and in the proclamation of his death that our coming represents. And I pray that we'd be encouraged today to make sure that we, we don't content ourselves to not understand the meaning and the beauty of what you have commanded. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, setting the stage briefly for where we're at in 1 Corinthians, as you recall, we've been moving through this lengthy section that Paul has uh, begun to work through all these issues and problems that the Corinthian church has been facing and, and correcting their theology and helping them understand how to live the Christian life. We've been looking recently at issues like meat sacrifice to idols and the tradition of head coverings there in the church of Corinth and the theology that was behind that. And now Paul has turned to the issue of the Lord's table, or as they called it, the Lord's supper. And he's dealing with some pretty big issues regarding this symbol. And he does it in three parts. And last week we looked at the first part where Paul is diagnosing the problem. He's saying, hey guys, we've got a big issue going on. That big issue is that this symbol of unity has been the occasion for divisions and factions among you, particularly along socioeconomic lines, such that the wealthy were gathering together in a feast that was resulting in gluttony and drunkenness. And then the other parts of the church that was not as economically well-to-do were sitting alongside hungry and going without. And Paul says, this kind of, of division, this kind of distinction that you're making between one another when it comes to the Lord's table is nothing less than a despising of the church of God on display, diagnosing the problem. This week, he's going to be establishing the truth that they need before they can fix the problem. As he does over and over, he says, let's go back to what God has said. Let's remember what it means, what it represents, and then we'll be ready to do something about it. And that's what we'll see next week when Paul charts a course of repentance in verses 27 to 34 and says, because the Lord's table is actually about these things, here's what you need to do. Here's how you need to change. And hopefully then God will stop killing you for making such a blunder over the Lord's table. And we'll get to that next week. But this is a great paradigm for the Christian life in general. Uh, first, we need to be confronted with our error. We need to be confronted with our sin. God does that through his word, through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He also does that often through brothers and sisters in Christ that say, hey, I'm seeing something in your life. Maybe it's a blind spot, but this is not what God has said. And then we need to go back to his word and we need to say, what does God require of me? What is it that is the standard and the direction by which to live my life and then go through the process of repentance? And so Paul is walking them through that on this issue. What is it that Paul wants them to understand? Well, in short, that the Lord's Supper is a genuine partaking of the sacrifice of Jesus in symbolic form so profound that to do so in a spirit of selfishness is going to have similarly profound consequences. And so he begins to then teach them and remind them what this is all about. And if you're taking notes this morning, your first point this morning comes from verses 23 to 24, where Paul reminds them that when we come to the bread of communion, we are coming to taste of costly grace, to taste of costly grace. Paul begins there in verse 23 saying this, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. 
And, and he means here not that Jesus gave him a new direct revelation, but he's, he's making a distinction about where this particular teaching comes from. Much of our teaching regarding the life of the church and how we are to honor God comes from the Holy Spirit inspiring the words of Scripture through the pens of the apostles. And so much of our New Testament is written by Paul or Peter or John or these men that God worked through to inspire the various letters that make up most of our New Testament. However, there are teachings of our faith. There are things that have been given to us, not indirectly, as it were, through the hand of an apostle, but from the mouth of Jesus himself. And Paul is saying this is one of those things. This is one of those parts of the life of the church that Jesus himself instituted and governed and gave direction for. And having received that from the Lord, he's now ready to deliver it to them. And that's another great just picture of the essence of Christian ministry. If, if the pattern of the Christian life is one of seeing sin, understanding truth, repenting and becoming like Christ, the pattern of Christian ministry is receive and deliver, receive and deliver. The church is not to be a place full of very many new and novel ideas. Creativity, sure, but new and novel ideas is not our goal. We're not trying to make up cool stuff. We're trying to accurately receive what God has given to us. And then we are to deliver it faithfully to the next generation, generation after generation. And the Lord's table, like all the precious truths of Scripture, is not an evolving reality. It's not an evolving symbol or metaphor. It is something that needs to be carefully received, experienced, and then delivered. And that's one of my favorite parts of communion, is seeing folks come forward, some saints nearing heaven to partake of communion and right there with them other saints newly in Christ just having confessed their faith learning how it is that they are to regard the body and blood of Christ in this memorial meal and honor him and so Paul says this is what I gave to you that I had received from Christ and then he gives us what the Lord's Supper consisted of. Continuing on there, he says that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so Paul is now walking them through the instruction that he had received from the Lord. And he begins with the timing of the giving of the Lord's Supper, that last night when Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room at the end of that long, tumultuous week approaching the cross when Jesus had been through so much and the crowds and all of the drama. And then he finally has this time to withdraw and just be with his closest followers. And in that last upper room, he is giving them this instruction. But there's this other little bit that we see and hinted at here in this passage, and that is that despite what might have been an idyllic, quiet scene, it is full of hardship and drama. As Paul notes, this is the night in which Jesus was betrayed. This is the night in which Jesus was betrayed. And that should have been the end of the story. God came to earth to be among his people. He was super nice, did all kinds of really wonderful things, and then they betrayed him. And so the earth was consumed in a fireball of divine wrath, and God lived blessedly ever after, right? That's how the story should have gone, from human estimation. And yet all the sufferings, all the hardships of Christ are summarized in this one word that Jesus was betrayed. And yet that is not the end of the story. 
Our Savior did not stop at betrayal, at suffering, but He would persevere, which is why we are gathered here, not to commemorate the ashes of divine judgment, but to commemorate the sacrifice of a gracious Savior. And that Savior, we can see, even on that last night, was the one who must take initiative in His work. The disciples there, in their sin, the disciples there, in their frailty and in their weakness, they did not even have the understanding or the faith to ask Jesus for a blessing. They did not even, like Jacob, say, I will not let go of you, Jesus, until you bless me. No, they sat there eating and drinking and figuring out which of them was the greatest in the kingdom. And so it is Jesus who must then, in the midst of the meal, stand up and take the bread and break it, bless it and give thanks, so that he may present to his disciples a symbol of what will be his act of grace on their behalf. And he gives the meaning then to them of this broken bread. The bread is no longer just bread. It has become now a symbol of the very body of Jesus Christ given for them. And in this we hear echoes of Paul's teaching we've been through on meat sacrificed idols. There's a point at which it's not just meat, but it has been given meaning And Jesus says, this is no longer just bread. It's no longer even just the bread of the Passover, full of all the meaning that it would have had from the Old Testament and from the Old Covenant. Jesus says, I am now giving this new significance. And from now on, this will be the symbol representing the giving of myself to you in my own broken body. And so he ends then with the command, do this do this. We are not to fail in eating this bread and we are not to fail in eating that bread to do so without remembering Jesus. Do this in remembrance of me. And in these simple words lies such a world of meaning that we want to make sure we capture and that we treasure. What a taste of grace the communion bread really truly is. Should it not have been we that bring our loaves to Christ? Right? Should it not have been that we must come and present perhaps as so many religions around the world do, our food offering, our, our symbol of our life, and we, we break it as a symbol of our sacrifice to God and, and present it to some altar or to some fire to be consumed by the deity with a, with a hope that by that his perfect justice would be appeased towards us. But we know the sad reality is no pile of bread loaves, no matter how big, no giving of sacrifices, no matter how costly, would ever be able to truly satisfy a perfectly holy and just God, which is why we do not come to bring our loaves and give them to Christ. But we come to receive from Christ the bread of his body broken for us. As God gave manna to the children of Israel in the wilderness, despite their grumbling. So Jesus is now the daily nourishment of his people as God exhibited the showbread in the temple to demonstrate his covenant presence among his people. And unlike the burnt offering, the showbread was consumed by the priests and not by the fire. So Jesus 
is given that he may be the presence of God to us as the ravens winged bread from heaven to earth for Elijah in the wilderness when he was disheartened and following the Lord. So Jesus is to us the loaf of comfort and a strength when we find ourselves in the wilderness as well. Indeed, as Jesus taught us, he is the very bread of life. And those who partake of him will find the hunger of their soul satisfied. What a gracious Savior who gives himself like this. Could his love be any greater? Well, there's a second symbol. Not only in coming to the Lord's Supper do we taste of the grace of God, the giving of Jesus for us and his own broken body, but we are also invited, verse 25, to drink of covenant blessings. And if you're like, I have no idea what covenant blessings is supposed to mean, then hold on because I hope in just a few minutes this will be one of your favorite phrases. Verse 25, in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In an echo of the giving of the bread, Jesus secondly takes up the cup on that night after supper. And we understand that it is not the the physical cup that is the symbol. It's not the vessel. It's what it contains. It is that liquid within which will serve as the symbol, a symbol just as the bread was of Christ's body. In this case, a symbol of the blood of Jesus. But I want you also to notice here that he is not giving us another symbol of merely the same reality. In the giving of the bread, we had the picture of the broken body of Jesus, which he says is given for us. And when we come to the cup, we come to the symbol of the blood of Jesus shed for us, which also is a symbol of his giving, also is a symbol of his dying. But notice that Jesus ties it to something more particular. He ties it to something that is one of the most amazing, momentous happenings in all of Scripture. The inauguration of the new covenant. Well, what's a covenant? And what's the point of having a new one? This is part of the bedrock of our faith. The God we worship is a God who makes binding promises with his people. And these binding promises with blessings and curses attached are what we call covenants. And there's a number of covenants in the scripture, covenants made with Abraham, with Moses, with David, with Solomon and others. But the one we're going to focus on at the moment is God's covenant with his people through Moses at Mount Sinai. And you can remember that scene when God brings his people out of the land of Egypt through the Red Sea and they gather in the wilderness at the base of Mount Sinai and God shows up on that mountain and shakes it with fire and thunder, his glory radiating from the top of that hill as he gives to them the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law and makes a covenant with his people there. If Israel would be obedient to that revealed law, Yahweh would bless them forever. He would give them a land. He would give them great abundance in the land, protection and fellowship. If, however, Israel were to be unfaithful to God, if they would violate that law, then the covenant stipulated that they would experience judgment from God. And that's the story of the Old Testament. A covenant of blessings and cursings that hinges on the obedience of God's people. 
Was it a bad covenant? Certainly not. It was a righteous and it was a good covenant that came from a righteous and a good God. The problem is that Israel, like the rest of us, was not righteous and good. And as a result, we can see from one end of the Old Testament to the other, this sad cycle of Israel declaring their allegiance and love for Yahweh and then experiencing his blessings and then turning their back on him in idolatry and falling under the curse of the law and then crying out in repentance to God in their pain and their suffering and then experiencing deliverance and then declaring their allegiance to God again and starting the cycle all over round and round and round at the pinnacle of that cycle in the old testament when the complete destruction of god's chosen city of jerusalem and the raising to the ground of the temple of god there was imminent the nation had become weary of this covenant that they were so woefully unable to keep the prophet jeremiah in particular wept over the coming judgment of God and wrestled with the seeming hopelessness of it all. And that is when God revealed that there was still good news for those whose faith remained in God. You see, the covenant of Moses was a big deal, much like the demands of the stone table in C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, immutable and unchangeable and ancient. But just as in that story, there was a magic deeper still. It was God who had promised all the way back in the very Garden of Eden that he, of his own accord, would bring about a seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And it was God again, without reference to our obedience, who had promised Abraham that through him would come that very seed and through him would come a blessing to the whole world. And God had not forgotten that commitment. And so the Mosaic Covenant, God's promises and curses given to Moses, would not and could not be the final word. And what joy it must have been then for Jeremiah to receive, and you'll be able to follow along on the screen with me, these words in the midst of his sadness. When God says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. He's talking here of that Mosaic covenant that God made through Moses at Sinai. This covenant, he goes on to say, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law no longer on stone tablets, no longer on scrolls and parchments. I will put it within them and on their heart. I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again every man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. 
What a wave of comfort and mystery this must have been to Jeremiah to hear these words, even as those who are about to lay waste to Jerusalem are giving siege to the city. This new covenant would not depend on their strength, but on the power of God. It would not establish a law always out of reach for fallen man, but it would establish a relationship of fellowship and nearness with God. It would no longer require rivers of the blood of sacrifices to make constant atonement for the sin of the people, but it would finally bring forgiveness of sin and a remembrance of sin that was no more. And Jeremiah must have wondered, could such a thing ever possibly last? And so God goes on in verse 40 to say, I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them. What good news! Because over and over in Israel's history, they had turned their back on Yahweh and in faithfulness to his covenant promises to them through Moses, God had turned the face of his blessings away from them. And now God says, I will not turn away from you to do you good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. How blessed is that? Not only will God keep the face of his blessing to his people, but it is in fact he who will overcome the weakness of our faithlessness and keep us to himself. I will rejoice over them to do them good and will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and all my soul. That's one of those phrases that if you see it in a cheesing wedding vow, you might be like, "Mm, nice. But when God says, with all my heart and with all my soul, you have just encountered something that is as unchangeable as God himself. How will this amazing new covenant come about? Well, God tells Jeremiah in chapter 33, beginning of verse 14, when he again introduces this theme by saying, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth. And he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she will be called. Yahweh is our righteousness. This then is the key that will turn the lock of God's greatest and final covenant with man. The righteous branch of David. And so God's people waited and waited and waited for this branch, this descendant of David to appear. And you have to imagine, you have to imagine Paul's voice almost quavering as he dictates these words, recalling that night when Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The branch of David had come. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that's what it means to say when we come to the table, we come to drink of covenant blessings. 
What a wondrous thing that in Christ we, many of us who are Gentiles and not a part of Israel, have been grafted in by faith to partake of the blessings of that new covenant. As I said, there are many promises and covenants of God through Scripture, and not all of them are for everybody. And that's why we've got to read them carefully, because context matters. But when it comes to this greatest and most wonderful of all God's promises, what a joy that in Christ he has worked out his sacrifice in such a way that by faith we all, wherever we may be from, have the chance to come and to share in the blessings of the new covenant. His blood poured out for us. By faith we are made partakers in him. That blood being so beautifully symbolized in the wine of communion. From the beginning, the fruit of the vine has a rich history as a symbol of blessing, as a symbol of prosperity. It's also one of the sacrifices used in temple worship and poured out before the Lord as a symbol of life. Wine was given by God, we read in Psalm 104.15, to be something which makes the heart of man glad as a gift from him. It's also noted as the liquid which brings healing and relief from various maladies. And yes, can wine be abused? You betcha. Just like bread can be abused, gluttony and drunkenness are both sin. And just as a side note, I do think it is possible that even when we come to worship, we can worship excessively chasing the effects of worship rather than the substance of worship in a way that is akin to spiritual drunkenness. But when used in moderation as the gift that it is, wine is a powerful symbol of happiness, sacrifice, comfort, and even judgment. All these things and more are fulfilled in our Savior. And it ought to also be noted that it is wine, unlike the bread, which our Savior also singled out for future significance. For on that night when he drank with his disciples, he makes the comment that he will never again taste of wine until he drinks it with us in his kingdom. And so this is the symbol that unites us not only with his death, but most particularly with our anticipation of feasting with him at the wedding feast of the Lamb. When we take of the cup, we enfold all the beauty of the symbol and all the meaning of its substance. The life of Jesus poured out as a covenantal sacrifice by the shedding of his blood. And when we think about the goodness then of the new covenant in contrast to the old covenant, we like the author of Hebrews can get caught up in the grandeur of all this in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 22. And here's where that language of Zion comes from. The author of Hebrews discussing why the old covenant is so far a pale shadow of the fullness of the new covenant. He says, but you have come not to Mount Sinai, but to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are rolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. He goes on in verse 28 to say, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. 
And in those final words, we turn a corner to where our passage this morning will end as well. For we cannot partake of Christ with understanding and not find ourselves compelled to gratitude, to service, reverence, and awe. The Corinthians are showing none of those qualities. And that's how Paul knows they do not understand the Lord's Supper and why he must teach them again what it is all about. And so he closes his review of the Lord's Supper with a call to them to engage in consecrated worship. Your last point in your outline this morning, an act of consecrated worship. Look with me at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Something which is consecrated, it merely means to have been set aside for special or sacred use. And Paul moves from the actions of Christ in giving himself to the significance of us in coming to observe them. Whenever we take communion together, Paul teaches us here, we become bound to the significance of that sign. This again goes back to the themes we learned in the discussion of meat sacrificed to idols. As soon as that meat has been identified as having been dedicated to the worship of a false god, for us to partake of that sign is for us to be bound to idol worship. And Paul says, don't do it. However, similarly, when we come to the table of the Lord to partake of this sign is to bind ourselves to the meaning of this meal. We cannot participate in the symbols of the Lord's Supper without participating in the meaning of the Lord's Supper. And for this reason, as Paul is going to go on immediately to explain, those who are coming and eating and drinking carelessly were in fact guilty of an offense against the real body and blood of Jesus. And that had gotten some of them killed, Paul will say. But that's next week. For now, Paul is reminding us here that when we partake rightly of communion, it is a collective proclamation of Christ's death and a collective anticipation of his return. Have you ever been to a memorial service during which they said, thank you for being here as we remember the deceased and we'll continue this service until they show up? That's not how it goes, is it? But that is what we do every week that we come to the Lord's table. We memorialize his death until he shows up. This morning, the hope is that by perhaps taking a little more time and making our observing of the table a little bit different, a little bit special, it will help to underscore what an important part in the life of the church this meal is. And before we take together, I want to make just a few observations. And the first is this. Communion is both memorial and mystery. Communion is both memorial and mystery. This is bread and this is the cup. They are symbols. And some, having gotten so caught up in the beauty and the grandeur of this symbolic display, have gone so far as to say that either by special words of a priest or a pastor, you can turn the bread into the actual flesh of Jesus and turn the wine into the actual blood of Jesus. And that is not what Scripture teaches. These are symbols. It is a remembrance. It is a memorial. And they are physical symbols for a reason. I think sometimes it is easy in our church tradition as a Bible church 
to so emphasize the heart that we forget that we're not just a heart. We're a physical and a spiritual being. And this is meant to have an impact on our body as well as on our spirit. We come to not just metaphorically taste, but to actually taste. Not to just spiritually drink, but to physically drink. And in so doing, to remind ourselves, Christ didn't just give himself to us figuratively. He gave himself to us physically. All of Christ for all of us. Perhaps you're like me where you grew up in a church where if the song said we raise our hands, you understood that to mean it looked something like this. And even today, I have a hard time getting much above the shoulder under any circumstances. <laughs> but when we come to take of the Lord's table, let the physicality of those symbols let that actual bite, let that actual drink be a reminder to you that everything about us becomes a partaker of everything about him in the gospel. Secondly, communion is for the saints. Oh, excuse me, I'm jumping ahead. That's memorial. I forgot mystery. I can't forget mystery. One of the things I did this week as I was preparing was go to, we have a shelf of a bunch of theology books and stuff. I just pulled off a big stack and was pouring over them, all these great theologians of the past, trying to understand how they would unpack the theology of communion. And it became very clear quickly to me that every theologian has this experience in common. They recognize that when we are studying the Lord's Supper, there is something mysterious and wonderful and glorious going on here. And that no matter how big your vocabulary is, we can't figure out how to describe it. This is a meal that is full of unique grace and blessing for us. Not because the the elements transform into some mystical substance as though it were a magic spell, but because God imparts goodness to his people when they commemorate the gospel together. The gospel is memorial and mystery. Next, communion is for the saints. To take communion is more than just to participate in an interesting religious ritual. It is a shared receiving by faith of the body and blood of Jesus. It's a sign of participation in the new covenant through Christ. And therefore, it is not right that those who are walking in unrepentant sin and are under church discipline or those who are despising of another brother and sister in Christ and are unreconciled or those who have simply never placed their faith in Jesus Christ at all is unfitting that they should participate in this meal because to do so would be to declare something which is not true. And if you are here this morning and you're thinking, I've got some issues I need to deal with, some some areas of unrepentant sin, I would encourage you even right now before the Lord, would you confess those things? Would you even right now begin that work of reconciliation? And if you're visiting with us today and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, you have not trusted in his sacrifice for you. We wish to thank you for being here, to welcome you here to our fellowship, but also to encourage you not to make yourself a participant in something of such meaning that you do not yet claim as your own. Communion is for the saints. But similarly, or on the other hand, you could say communion is for the saints, all of them, no matter what they're going through. 
Perhaps you have sinned greatly this week and have been confessing that before the Lord with tears. Perhaps you're clinging to faith by the barest thread and feeling overwhelmed. Perhaps you're discouraged and despairing this morning. Perhaps you're just brand new in the faith, even during our message, perhaps calling out to God for the first time and saying, be gracious to me, the sinner, by the mercy in Jesus Christ. Then you must come to the table. You must come to the table. Do not wait until you feel you are better equipped and can make a better offering of yourself because that's not what this is. It is a receiving of the better offering of Christ for us. Find here food for your faith. As the church fathers of old noted in scripture, we are told the full truth of the gospel. And in communion, we experience the full truth of the gospel. In partaking, may you taste and see that your God is still good and still loves you and find comfort and find strength and be reminded of his sufferings and victory and be assured that your own sufferings shall not be in vain when you are in him. And that takes us then to our time around the Lord's table as we remember that night in which our Lord was betrayed And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup also and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And we understand this morning that as we come to do that, we are coming to proclaim his death until he comes. And so in just a minute, as the music begins to play, I would invite you to come forward. We will encourage you to exit your rows on your left and come forward to the table in front of your section. Take of the elements here at the front as you receive them. There's a basket to receive your empty cup and then return to your aisle on what is currently your right. And if we do this correctly, it will be a picture of unity with no high speed collisions. So let's try to do that. In coming to take, as I mentioned next week, Paul's emphasis will be on the careful examination of the heart so that we do not partake in an unworthy fashion. May I encourage us this week as we partake that our focus and our emphasis would be on enjoying the good news and the goodness of Christ's gift for us. As John Bunyan titled one of his books, Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ. Let me pray and then come forward. Father, Receive now from us the act of worship by which we come to take this bread and take this cup in remembrance of your son. May you, by your graciousness, renew in us again our love for you and our faithfulness so that we might walk in obedience to you. We are grateful that in the new covenant, your face of blessing is never turned away from your children. And we ask, Lord, that you would, though we are often fainting, keep us that our face would never be turned from you. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you come?